we've been looking at um, the book of Second Samuel uh, while I've been with you. And uh, one of the things we're looking at in the book of Second Samuel is the life of David. It's really, that's what the book is about. It's about the life of this king who lived uh, about 3,000 years ago uh, in Israel, what's now Israel. And was, uh, if you like, one of the great national heroes of uh, Israel, but who wasn't just a great national hero of Israel. He was also a spiritually important figure. Well, Israel actually had loads and loads of kings. Some of them reigned for longer than David, some of them for less long than David. Some of them were more successful in terms of expanding territory and the economy. Uh, some of them less successful. But uh, none of them occupy the same space in Israel's history that David does. And the reason for that is that his life uh, was a great source of blessing and God's promise for the nation. And then when we find Jesus coming... One of the things that's most often said about Jesus, one of the ways that the uh, people who met Jesus most often referred to him, was as the son of David. There's a sense in which everything that God began in David, he was fulfilling in Jesus. And so David is a really interesting guy to study. And we're looking at his life, uh, both from the point of view of uh, learning how we should behave, because the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. He's a good example in some ways. But he also is an example of how not to behave. He's an example of someone who experienced great moral failure and had to recover from that. And something of how God did it. To put it in sort of more theological language, he shows us who Jesus is and he shows us why we need Jesus. Uh, and today we are starting to look at the fall of David. Uh, I guess if uh, this was the HBO or the BBC production of David's life, we're about midway through the series. And up until now, it's been one great victory after another. And uh, now uh, there starts to be a spectacular decline. And each week I like to give a lunchtime summary, a summary of what it is that I'm going to be talking about. And this week is this. We all sin. And the consequences can be terrible. But through Jesus, we can be forgiven and healed. It's that straightforward. We all sin and the consequences are terrible. But through Jesus, we can be forgiven and healed. We all sin. The consequences are terrible. But through Jesus, we can be forgiven and healed. So I'm going to read now uh, from uh, 2 Samuel. And I'm going to read at chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, I'm going to put the words on the screen, but I do encourage you to try and grab a paper Bible if you can. It's good to uh, read from a paper Bible, get familiar with it. So this is uh, 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war... David sent Joab out with with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. 
Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah didn't go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and to make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I won't do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent to David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot down arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an, an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you to this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger sent out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open. But we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite's dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her, her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. I'm going to read a couple more uh, scriptures, uh, just to set the scene for something else that we're going to be thinking about in the sermon. So this is from Isaiah 53, and it's, it's written a couple of, oh, sorry, about 800 years before Jesus, and about 200 years after David's moral failure. And it describes the person God would send, if you read Isaiah carefully, it describes God himself coming as a person and doing something for the rest of the people. So Isaiah writes this, he says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, 
nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And this idea that God would send someone who would be God himself, who would suffer in the place of the people for all the wrong stuff they'd done, is then taken up by uh, the New Testament writers, and by John the Baptist in particular. He says this, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, John is saying, everything you expected, Isaiah expected God to do, is going to be done in this man. Actually, it's more than that. Everything you read about in Leviticus, all the sacrifices you've ever offered when you were sorry for your sins, they were all about this man. And after Jesus died, his friends reflected on this. And they wrote this. So this is uh, Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, wrote this about Jesus. He said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And St. John put it most succinctly. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the word of God. So we've got this story uh, of King David who has done amazing things. He's become the king of Israel. He's united Israel together. He's drawn them together. He started to fulfill everything God said Israel would be about, which was being a light to the nations around them. So we read how the nations, the kings around, start sending stuff to David so that he can build temples and palaces because they want to worship God. And we've seen seeds of David's problems. He keeps on taking more and more wives. He keeps on getting married over and over again and uh, having more and more kids, which is something God has specifically said he should not do. But in spite of that, it hasn't really come back to bite him yet. Uh, God has blessed him and he has grown in faith and in favour and he's become a mighty king, a kind of golden age king. And in our last uh, talk we were looking at, uh, at the, uh, God's great promises to David that David said to God, I'm going to build you a house, uh, I'm going to build you a great temple. And God said to David, no, 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 no. You don't understand this at all. You're nothing, you're like an ant, right? I found you in the field, a shepherd boy forgotten by his own family, and I made you the king of Israel. You're not going to build me a house. I'm so gracious, I'm going to build you a house. Like, you will have descendants, you will have a descendant that lives on the throne forever. You're going to have a descendant who conquers death. You're going to have a descendant whose sin can't touch. And we thought about how gracious and mighty God is, and how this looked forward to Jesus. And so David is at the peak of his power. And in the intervening chapter, we skipped it, I called it miscellaneous battles. David is just going around defeating everybody he wants. 
and showing kindness to everyone he wants. And at the peak of this, he has this moment of utter disaster. I was trying to think of what I could compare this to, and my mind turned to uh, the World Cup final, as it often does. And uh, this moment, I was actually in Italy watching this happen. It must have been 2006 World Cup. I was in Italy watching this happen, but in Italy cheering for France. Okay. So this is uh, the guy in the white there, you can see. He's slightly blurry because it's a still from a moving picture. The guy in the white there is probably the best footballer I've ever seen. Uh, his name is Zinedine Zidane, and he's the French football captain. He's already won the World Cup for France pretty much single-handedly once. And he is the comfortably, at this point, the best player in the world, by a long shot. Now, anyone, this is uh, now, you can see the clock, 110 minutes into the World Cup final, so they're 20 minutes into extra time. Uh, Zidane uh, is about to have a King David moment, so let's watch and see what happens. Now, Matarazzi did what? Just did, uh, kind of give us a bit more of a clue. He said something. He certainly said something. Now what happens? He's saying some more. Well, yeah. The pictures yeah. tell the story. Yeah, there you go. Unsurprisingly, he's sent off. Right. He leaves football in distress. And he leaves his team in big trouble. France down to ten men. And the showpiece of the world game has an unsavoury moment here. And we'll make the headlines beyond the results, I feel. There you go. Zidane, the greatest footballer in the world, one of the best players I've ever seen, who I would, if I had a time machine, I would go back and watch play over and over again. He, at the moment of his peak performance, I mean, not many players have won the World Cup twice. I can't think of any. And Zidane is on the, is on the cusp of doing this. And he, something wells up within him. And he headbutts Matarazzi in the chest. And his entire world falls apart. Uh, to the point where people in English Baptist churches 13 years later are showing pictures of him. Illustrating, he's become a byword for uh, kind of the collapse of the great. And he... David's failure is, 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 is very similar. Actually, it's much more serious. Nobody died. Matarazzi got headbutted. To be honest, he probably deserved it, if you know anything about Matarazzi. There wasn't an enormous amount of sympathy for him. Uh, he, for David, David sees this woman. He's up on his, he's up on his roof. He is uh, looking out over the city. And in the culture that they're in, it's stiflingly hot. And so uh, you, people would go up on the roof to take baths and cool, cool down in the afternoon. And he sees this woman having a bath. And uh, he uh, sees her and then he starts to think about her. He says, oh, she's quite good looking, isn't she? I assume he's able to see her because his palace is slightly higher than everybody else's. And after a while he thinks about it and he, he says to his man, I want you to find out who that naked woman on the roof was. So they go and find out. She's actually the wife of one of his closest generals. If you follow Uriah through the Bible, uh, the references to him, he's one of David's crack elite team of fighters. So he's been with David through thick and thin when David was in exile. And he's got married, and this is his wife. And so David uh, 
finds out who she is, then after a while he thinks about her a bit more, and then he says, can she come to see me? And then she comes to see him, and then he, uh, he makes love to her. And uh, I say makes love, it's actually quite an ugly story. I mean, goodness knows in what sense this is consensual. She is a guest in the house of the king who's just had her brought to him. I mean, it's not, a, it's not an attractive situation at all. And she becomes pregnant. Disaster. And so David, starting with uh, the Richard Nixon school of government, begins as hard as he can to cover it up. And the first thing he thinks is, I'm going to cover it up by getting her husband to come back from the fighting. It's okay, they'll have sex and then we'll just pretend the kid's his. Uh, maybe it was born a couple of months early. No one will question it. People might have a rumour, but no one will ever bring anything back to me. And so... Uh, he sends for Uriah, and Uriah, there's this kind of comedy moment in the middle of this very, very tragic story, where he sends for Uriah, and Uriah refuses to go home. So David's like, come back, go and see your beautiful young wife, you know, relax, enjoy yourselves, do what comes naturally, you're a soldier, you've been away in battle, there must be all sorts going around your mind, it's fine. And he won't go, so he lies down in the court of the palace. And you have this scene where David comes out of the gates of the palace, and you kind of expect him thinking, this is all gone brilliantly, the cover-up's gone perfectly, and who does he trip over lying in the gates but Uriah, who's refused to go down the street back to his house. And so he has another idea, which is I'll get him drunk. And when he's drunk, he will make bad decisions, so he gets him drunk, but Uriah still won't go home. Uriah... Drunk is more righteous than David sober. And so David panics, and the next day he sends uh, instructions to his lead general, a murderer named Joab, to say, Can you have this man killed? Arrange the battle so that he will be killed. Uh, David and Joab are brilliant generals. That's where they made their reputation as generals. And so David knows that this is a cinch for Joab. They both know how to do it. They fix the battle so that Joab is killed, along with a whole load of other people. And Joab sends back to David and says, actually this has happened, we've had this appalling defeat, and it was incredibly incompetent, except that Uriah is dead. And David says, well that's fine. It's a story of tragic inevitability. And it's worth pondering for a moment because it's instructive it's instructive to think about the anatomy of failure remember about anatomy of failure I mean how is failure made up how do we end up doing things that we wish we didn't do how do we end up sinning to use biblical or old fashioned language well the first thing I want to suggest is that David is idle I'm not condemning him for not being at war. Some people would say he should have been at war. I don't know whether there was a good reason. But he's just mooching about in the afternoon. He's bored. Now that might sound like something trivial. and There's nothing sinful about being bored. But there is a wisdom point here. If you want to avoid doing things that you know you shouldn't do, fill your time with things you should. If we want to avoid doing things we shouldn't do, being trapped in temptation... We should fill our minds and our lives with things we should, we should be doing. You know, God has actually saved and redeemed each one of us with a great purpose for our lives. There's endless work to be getting on with. 
you know, Jesus said, I've come, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to release those who are in prison. If you're bored and you don't have anything to do, and you're sitting around thinking, I'm not sure what I should be doing with my life, go and speak to Heather about volunteering at Felton. You know, find something to do. David is bored and he's mooching about in the afternoon. And when he's mooching about in the afternoon, sort of channel flicking, his eye catches something. Again, there's nothing sinful about that. His eye catches something. There's nothing you can do about that. He sees this woman. She's on the roof bathing. It happens. Perhaps he, to think of a modern analogy, he's doing the accounts at work and he suddenly sees how it would be possible for someone to steal money from the boss. He didn't do anything about it. He just sees how it would be possible, how you could rig the books. Sees how he could have an affair without his husband knowing, without her husband knowing. Be very easy to do it. And he just sees this woman, he thinks, oh. And so, having seen her, he has a choice to make. What's he going to do about it? Is he going to go back in his house and get on with something? Get on with being king? Or is he going to ponder her? So instead of getting on with his life and trying to put himself to good and uh, useful Work. He dwells on this temptation. And that's how sin works. It starts off with something that you are attracted by or that seems like it's a good idea. And then it, it grows. It's like a tiny little seed that's planted. That if it's given enough water and light and air, it grows and it nourishes and it nurtures. And then you find something starts to sprout. So David says, oh, I wonder what her name is. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder what her name is. So he sends men to find out. And then when they found out what her name is, he says, oh, I wonder what it would be like to have her in the palace. So he brings her to the palace. You can see how he's just, he's just gradually nurturing this temptation until it's getting to be inevitable. I, just, I wonder if I, if I did fiddle the books, how I would go about covering it up. I, I wonder if I, if I was going to have an affair, where we'd do it. He just gradually nurtures it and encourages it and dwells with it and lets it dwell with him until it gets to the point where it's become full-blown desire in his heart. Martin Luther said you can't stop birds from landing on your heads. Temptations will come. But what you can do is stop them building nests. David builds a birdhouse for this bird. He lingers on the temptation and he nurtures it and then his nurturing becomes an act. And that is how every type of sin happens. Almost without fail. It's that seed of illegitimate desire that we place in our hearts. We nurture and grow until it becomes something big. That takes over what we want. You think about Nixon actually. Nixon's a good illustration of this. If you read biographies of Nixon, if you don't know who Nixon is, don't worry. He was the president of America in the 1970s, who, late 60s and early 70s, who had, uh, has become a byword for political scandal. What he actually did was that he used dirty tricks during election campaigns and bugged his opponents. Right? If you read biographies of Nixon, that's not how Nixon started off. Nixon didn't start off campaigning like that. He actually lost an election against John Kennedy because there was massive corruption on the other side. And so he starts to think, well, I want to win elections and therefore it seems unfair, system's already unfair, so I, why shouldn't I cheat? 
And so gradually the cheating becomes more and more and more until it subsumes the entire office of the President of America. And then he acts on it. It's striking as well that as soon as he acts on it, you see, you see in the story how Bathsheba is referred to. Almost immediately she is referred to as simply as an object that David is using. And that's the other effect that sin has. We're going to think about this in a minute. That it, it, we're told that Bathsheba is Bathsheba, uh, the son of, I think it's Elkar, the, sorry? The daughter, sorry, daughter, yeah. The husband of Uriah. It's almost as if she has no identity of her own. Right? David has seen this woman and he wants her and he wants to use her for his own good and because he's focused on his own desire, she's just an object to be used. And so he uses her. And the consequences are terrible. You see, this is the other thing we kid ourselves, I think, now, is that the consequences of sin, of the moral decisions we make, are not very serious. Actually, they're incredibly serious. Right? David is an illustration of this. Because of David deciding to uh, actively pursue another man's wife, A, he commits adultery. B, he commits murder. C, he murders countless other people who also died in the battle. Did you notice that when Joab reported back? He said, not only is Uriah Hittite is dead, but many others are dead as well. Well, to see. D, he strengthens the hand of a wicked man. Right? In a sense, he makes a bargain with the devil. Why do I say that? Well, Joab is a murderer. David has already said, what do I have to do with Joab? He kills people in cold blood. And now Joab thinks, oh, well, David's one of, my, one of me. He's like me. Strengthens the hands of the wicked, loses his own moral authority, sets a culture in his country and in his family that will destroy the kingdom. The consequences are terrible. They're terrible for others. They're terrible for the people involved. So Bathsheba is abused and ends up pregnant and is uh, left being ferried between houses and uh, treated as an object. It's terrible for Bathsheba, terrible for Uriah, because he has to cope with the consequences of the king's betrayal and eventually his murder. They're terrible for the people who died. They're terrible for the people under Joab's command. They're terrible for society. The wrong people are built up and the right people are torn down. The murderer is strengthened and the righteous man who was so concerned with his comrades that he slept in the dirt when he came home is murdered. The consequences are terrible for David himself. He loses his character and his moral authority. David goes from being a man who's so appalled at murder that he literally washes his hands of it in public and denounces the murderers even when they're his own people through to becoming a murderer himself. Once he's begun down that path, he makes bad choice after bad choice after bad choice after bad choice. His heart becomes hard to the people around him. Put simply, he changes. The decisions we make change us. Not only that, his moral authority has been compromised. His ability to be who God has called him to be and to do the work God has called him to do has been compromised. God called him to be king, the one who judges between right and wrong. And now he's put himself on the side of wrong. Most seriously, as we'll see as we read this story through, 
he compromises his relationship with God. God won't offer life to someone filled with bitterness and abuse forever. David has begun down a path that will see him cut off from God's love and his life. Why? Because God is love. God is life. And if you're somebody who puts yourself on the side of hatred and of murder, how can you dwell with someone who puts themselves on the side of love and life? It just doesn't make any sense. God won't offer life to someone filled with bitterness and abuse forever. It would be uncruel and unjust to the rest of the world. What would God say to Uriah? If in eternity, God is saying, well, it's fine, I'll just wink at it. We'll just keep David going forever. And Uriah's there saying, but what about justice for me? David's actions left unchecked will eventually lead to his death physically and much more seriously spiritually. Now why am I labouring this? It's not a very uplifting sermon. Because I want to make the point that sin is serious. It's not trivial. And it's easy to look at David and say, here is a king who had one of his generals murdered and slept with his wife and had other people murdered and established a murderer as one of his lieutenant generals and that's nothing like me. But actually when Jesus came to treat this, he said, that's exactly like us. He said that seed at the start of the process lives within each of us. When Jesus was asked about this at the Sermon on the Mount, you can read it in Matthew 5 and 6. Where where did David begin to go wrong? Well, he went wrong in his heart at the start of the chapter. When he looked at Bathsheba and wanted her and decided to act upon it. So Jesus is saying, don't throw stones at other people. Don't throw stones at David. Look into your own heart and see what seeds there are there. When did the seed of murder get planted in David's heart? When he decided that Uriah was less important than his own ambition. That seed, that sin, is serious. It's an infection that infects us all. And that has to be dealt with, or the consequences ripple out throughout the world. One word of gossip and malice said at the school gates ripples into bitterness and hatred into someone's heart, a sense of loneliness in another's heart which makes somebody cruel with their husband, which leads their marriage to break down, which leads their kids to not have a father or a mother, which leads them to grow up to be unkind and cruel to their own children, and so on and so on and so on and so on. Why? Because of, because of a, a, an unkind and cruel word said at the school gates. Why? Because of jealousy. Why? Because of bitterness. Why? Because of hatred. Why? Because of unkindness. The spiral is out of control. Until eventually you have entire societies infected by it. And it's impossible to escape from. Sin is serious. What then do we have to say for hope? Well, God knows this. God already knows that. He knows what it is to be human. He made us and he knows what it is to be human living in a world which is full of bitterness and wrong choices and the consequences of wrong choices. And God doesn't want to destroy the world. He loves it. So if you love something and you don't want to destroy it and you know what's infecting it and you know what's killing it, you you try and find a way to remove the infection. 
Right, that's what I do with my kids, isn't it? I, I, I can see them and they are sick and I know that I don't want them to stay sick, I know that I don't want them to die, so I find a way of curing the disease. Removing it from them. Ben had a growth in his ear. You might notice Ben most of the time wears a hearing aid. Not today because he had a birthday pie on Friday and as part of that birthday pie threw his hearing aid in the bin. Or I threw his hearing aid in the bin. And when I fished it out of the bottom of the bin this morning, having searched the house for it and prayed a lot, thank you Jesus, I uh, took it to him and said, Ben, I found your hearing aid. And he said, bright boy, where was it, daddy? And I said, the bin. Bright boy, which bin? Was it the paper bin? No, Ben. So, well, why don't you go and clean it, Daddy? And then we'll talk about me putting it back in my ear. <laughs> right? Ben wears a hearing aid because he had an operation on his ear because there was this growth in his ear that was eating away the bones, right? That's why if you talk to him, sometimes he doesn't hear what you're saying. Sometimes he's being rude. Most of the time it's because he didn't hear. And uh, if left unchecked, would have eaten away into his brain and eventually caused brain damage and eventually caused much more serious problems than that, right? All this tiny infection... What caused it? Earwax. You and I have earwax. Earwax is dead skin from inside your ear that comes out of the ear. Right? If it doesn't come out of the ear, if you don't get rid of the poison, it builds up and builds up and builds up and builds up and builds an infection that becomes unstoppable until eventually it eats into your brain. Sleep well. Earwax. Earwax has eaten his ear away. So we went to see the surgeon. We said, do whatever you have to do. Get it out. Two operations later, his ear's clear. Praise God. God sees humanity and he sees these tiny little things, these tiny little seeds of anger and bitterness and self-interest and pride and hatred that build up and 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 build up until they've eaten away our heart. And because he loves us, because he's a parent with more love for his children than either Heather or me, he says, let me do the surgery. And my instrument is Jesus. The Son of God came to reverse our failure and its consequences through his death and resurrection. That's why we celebrate each Sunday. Because we believe that David in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel is an accurate portrait of humanity... It is, if we're honest, how we do in fact treat each other. But we believe that God so loved the world that he didn't want to leave us like that. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are offered forgiveness because God has punished sin. He has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. If I can put it this way, it's as if God sucked the poison out and had it in his own body. The call of justice demand that wrongdoing be recognised and marked is more than satisfied on the cross. We are offered restoration through the Holy Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit brings healing and applies the work of forgiveness to a new life to our souls. Our lives and relationships can be restored because we're all brought back to God forever. We're given the promise that we can live forever in peace with God and with each other because death has been defeated. And all of this is done for us. If you're in Jesus this morning, that is what he has done for you. He's reversed the curse of 2 Samuel 11. If, you, if I can adapt St Paul's language, he wants to say, you're all just like David. Each one of you is like David. In fact, when I see David, I see you in him. 
Yeah, we use that phrase, don't we, of children. I was using it at baby and toddler group on, as uh, you remember, having Dadley on Saturday. I looked at this child and I thought, oh, I can see your mother in you. I can see you in your mother when I look at her. It's as if God says, well, I can see you in your father. Your father's David. And I can see him in you. But then he says, but I want to see Jesus in you instead. And if you trust Jesus and ask him, then when I look at Jesus, I see you in him. As if you're changed to have a new DNA. And all of that's done, not just for us to enjoy, but so that we can bring that peace to other people. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, Christ offers us forgiveness, healing and eternal life. But then he asks us to go and do the same for other people. To tell them about what Jesus has done for us and could do for them. To resist the powerful and abusive. In a sense to stand with Bathsheba rather than David when the whole world wants to stand with David. To make peace between those who are in conflict. I'm going to apply this now and then we're going to have communion. First thing, as I was praying about how to apply this, I wanted to say to those who've been hurt... Like Bathsheba who've been abused or Uriah who've been betrayed or the other casualties of David's orders. Your pain is real and your anger is seen by God and understood. Don't be afraid of the anger that comes from abuse and the pain. It's real and God understands it and God actually shares it. If you don't believe me, read the Psalms. One of the big themes of the Psalms is God is so unfair the way the world works and I am hurt and these people have hurt me and can you hear my anger? You might not be able to see it at the moment but I do want to say to you that there is healing through the Holy Spirit for you when you're ready to receive it. If you've been hurt, if you've been abused, if you've been betrayed don't rush away from your anger. God wants you to express it to him but he also wants to heal you when you're ready to receive it through his Holy Spirit. I want to say to all of us, each of us needs to be realistic about who we really are. The story of David is, to be blunt, our story. But the first step towards recovery is to accept it and to ask for forgiveness. We need to be honest about our sin. We need to bring it to God so it can be forgiven and we can be healed. And then we need to put in place relationships to help us. I study Alcoholics Anonymous as part of my work, part of my studies. That's what that whole system is predicated on, right? That you accept that you've got a problem because you can't stop drinking. Or Narcotics Anonymous, I've got a problem because I can't stop taking drugs. Well, I've got a problem, I can't stop being angry. And it comes out in all sorts of different ways. Or... You might think, oh, I've got a problem, I, I can't stop being jealous, or I'm spiteful, or I'm bitter, or I'm prideful. Or... It's okay, be honest about it, everyone's is. I mean, it's a whole life, but it's just there. Accept that we've got a problem, seek forgiveness, and then commit to walking with others to help each other overcome it. This is why we meet together in life groups. I'm going to plug these again. It's why we meet together in life groups. Right, the same reason alcoholics meet together in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
so that we can inspire each other, so that we can encourage each other, so we can hold each other accountable, so we can pray for one another. And then finally I want to suggest that if you're somebody who's received forgiveness and new life and healing and power, God wants to send you out to do the same for other people. You are called to be an agent of reconciliation. There is no excuse for a Christian being bored. God has given you the work of reconciling the world to itself and to him. Is that work done? No. Then what business do we have being bored? Go and volunteer. Volunteer with the CAB. Pray. Pray for the work of the gospel. Share your faith with your friends. Pray for those who are at conflict. Pray for the mum at the school gates who seems to be out, out, out of favour with everybody else. Join a charity to stand up for the abused and the oppressed. God's got work for you to do. We're a mission people. You are an agent of reconciliation in your school, workplace, commute, family or friendship group. I can't tell you exactly what that will look like, but God can. So let's pray about it. We all sin and the consequences can be terrible. But through Jesus we can be forgiven and healed. We're going to take five minutes now just to be quiet and to let the Spirit move in us and pray. And then we're going to take communion together. Let's just be quiet.